0: Good evening. Misfits Audio would like to welcome you to the Coffin Exchange Special, where we have some new and slightly used coffins to offer you tonight. Each one comes specifically equipped with its own audio. Again, these are some new and some, shall we say, slightly used ones. (laughs) Please enter... And follow me. Let me show you one of our all-time favorites. With solid brass handles and the best laminated pine wood around. We like to call this beauty the House of Doors. Come, let me open it up for you. So that you may hear the quality workmanship. The
1: Enchanted House of Doors by Anna Eastep-Teterzak many years ago. Standing silently, I peered through their cemetery gate, trying to visualize my grandmother's house. The monstrosity perched on a hill and overlooked a neighborhood that stretched between Glendale Cemetery. And the Akron Automobile Association building that had been raised replaced with concrete and steel. Suddenly I was magically transported by a flood of recollections back to my childhood. Momentarily I felt the embrace of the only person who could make me feel indestructible. I love Grandma. Therefore, nothing separated us for long, not even that ominous house. The structure resembling a setting for a horror movie loomed nearly three stories above ground with its formable basement windows nearly at my eye level. The house could evoke enough terror that I could become paralyzed in its shadow whenever I had a nightmare, a portion of the house always appeared as the backdrop for the most frightening episode. As a four-year-old, I remember sneaking out of our house across the neighbor's yard and inching my way towards the big house. As I approached, I could see the shutters barely on the window it would scream and creak as they would open and close with the slightest of wind. The banging sound would echo off the other buildings even though everything else was dead quiet. The grass and weeds have long been neglected to a point where four legged creatures now call it home. Very, very carefully, I would watch where I put my feet as I scanned each stained window for any signs of movement. I expected an apparition to jump down on me. I stride quickened with each step as I approached it hideous structure until I ran up the two back steps praying the screen door was open I grabbed for the metal handle my strength increased with the adrenaline flow sent the wooden frame door crashing against the banister where it ceased moving behind me the storm room which I was very scared of was to my right, which housed my grandfather's workbench and tools. The big padlock was closed, so it was safe to pass. The floorboards creaked with each step as I slowly crept toward the next threshold. I climbed up on a wooden, very large wooden step stood on my toes and wiped the dust and dirt from the cracked panes allowing me to see. I actually peek into the window for any signs of life. The kitchen was dark but I was optimistic someone will be in another room. I grasped the large round brass door now with both hands Turning and then jammed the massive door jar with my shoulder. My aunt Carissa and her family lived on the ground level. I called out all their names but there was no reply. The only sound came from water dripping in the bathtub which was in a room adjacent to the kitchen, I remember we never referred it to it as the bathroom, and I never went in there alone. The walls and ceiling once painted egg white, now only yellow plaster with cracks and holes that let in a little wind along with some small, crawly things with more legs than I. The only illumination came from a single light bulb suspended from the ceiling. The long string that activated it hung down behind the door. Whenever nature called, I would tell an adult, I have to go. Take me in there. While pointing towards the room, The door opened inward and bumped against the massive bathtub. The tub's legs resembled lion paws, which must have been formed by pouring the iron in a mold. I would hold onto the sink to my left, while my protector partially closed the door, and I would grope for the string. After I pulled on the string and the light revealed a large window in front of you, that's when you looked through it, you could see the back of a door that led to six steps that sent you down to the basement. Next to the window on the left was another door where the toilet was hidden. That room had no lighting. However, inside this room, where the toilet was, there was another door with a window in it. In the daytime, looking through the window of that door, I could see rays of sunlight filtering through the boarded-up porch and chattels of discarded furniture that was kept stored there. There was no heat source for this portion of the house. In the winter, my lips remained blue for hours after I bathed. After recalling all of this, I shuddered and decided to proceed straight ahead. Dwarfed by the appliance on my right and the kitchen table to my left, I made a dash for the archway of the dining room dining room windows stretched from the lofty ceiling to the wooden floor and spanned the length of the wall to my left. Other walls that were plaster were dark with torn paper that once had a beautiful wall design which seemed to feel like felt. Cobwebs hung in the corners. Some with leftover dinner. Others, with wishful tenants. Sunbeams reflected off the crystal chandelier, danced in every corner of the room. The room easily accommodated the formal, oversized dining table, padded chairs, china cabinet, and five doors. I felt... Like a mouse in a maze, with my heart in my throat, I pondered my next direction. Glancing to my right, I noticed the ornate carving that covered the door leading to my aunt's bedroom. It was a half-glass, heavy wooden door, similar to those used for exterior access with a matching window on the wall beside it. And like outside doors and windows, the paint was peeling off, showing dark mold on a decaying wood. Draperies were hung from inside the bedroom for privacy, but I always imagined someone or something was hiding there watching me. The wall of doors stood before me. Three huge doors challenged my presence. The formal entryway on the left was seldom used because of the time involved in opening two clumbersome black metal doors separated by a small foyer. Behind them was a long, wooden-covered porch with an adjacent, enclosed porch. The two formed an L-shaped boundary between the living quarters and the street below. The locked center door led to the basement. Only Uncle George dared to descend those steep and rickety stairs alone. I remember that others, two or more persons, would find it necessary to carry flashlights to provide the light to locate the hanging electric bulb during the daylight hours. No one went down there at night. Negotiating, the stairs took what seemed five or six minutes, with each step harder to take. Once on the basement floor, the area appeared to be an ancient dungeon with steep, cold limestone walls that slanted up to the ceiling, doors with wooden slats that locked down and closed, a room with a dirt floor that locked from the outside, and the stairs, visible from upstairs, that led to a door covering a brick wall. The central room housed a gigantic, dark, octopus coal furnace, which was converted to gas. I remember once when I was down there, and the furnace turned on, how the fire inside danced, making the front look like it had a mouth with very long teeth. They seemed to move as I walked past, and I wouldn't dare take my eyes off that opening. I was terrified that the door would not hold what was inside and bust open, and oh my, I didn't want to think of what would happen. There was old mold covering, wooden phone booth used as a shower stall a washing machine with rollers on top to wring out the water from the wash clothes there were boxes trunks and various items displaced through the years shadows everywhere the entire substructure appeared sinister i chose the only remaining exit from the dining room which took me into my cousin's bedroom which was located in front of the house and the last two doors unable to open either door I suddenly realized how loud the house groaned and moaned feeling frightened and helpless I closed my eyes and saw it I heard a door bust open I knew a ghost or demon would attack as punishment for leaving the safety of my yard As I prepared for my demise, a hand touched my head. The hairs on my neck stood out like pins. My legs refused to move. I could hear my heart beating so loud and fast. I wanted to cry out, but my mouth refused to move. I was frozen in the spot. Grandmother scolded me for leaving my mother's yard, dried my tears, and with a loving hug, vanished all my fears. Together we climbed a long stairway to the second level where she lived and she called home. However, I never equated her apartment with the rest of the house, except from the outside. She had her own bedroom with a small round sun porch that faced the street, a living room, bathroom and kitchen with a long and enclosed porch that was used as a greenhouse. The third floor was accessible by a spiral staircase hidden behind a door, which she kept locked. I never desired to know what secrets were sequenced behind it, at least not right now.
0: See, that was a bit rich for your blood. Well, never mind. I'm sure we'll find something to your liking. (laughs) Oh, here's a beautiful model we like to call Eye of Ra. I'm sure you'll enjoy this one. Uh, Would this be cash, charge, or layaway? (laughs)
2: A Namana Tale, written and read by Alexa Chipman. Emily felt the back of her head, expecting to encounter warm blood, but her fingers only combed their way through slightly dry blonde hair. She fumbled about over the scorching pavement for her glasses and struggled to put them on. Pain still rushed its way through her body. "'like an ebb and flow of a tide. "'But her vision cleared. "'The street was deserted, "'save for a few pieces of trash blowing idly along. "'There was a candy-bar wrapper, "'someone's old homework papers, "'and a beer-bottle, "'which rolled and bounced its way down the street, "'causing the only noise for miles around. "'Perfect rows of houses "'stretched their way primly along, What a sign announced as East McDowell Drive. Emily slowly sat up, clutching her head, then managed to stand, thanks to an obliging garbage can bulging with grass clippings. She leant heavily on it, taking some deep breaths in and out. Memories of her blackout began to reluctantly return. The flashes of light, the horrible itching sensation, and finally her bad fall. Whatever had happened, it was clear she needed a doctor. Maria's house, number four—no, two four seven. She mumbled aloud, "Two four three, two four five, two four seven. Continued to rub her temples, she staggered up to the door and almost flung herself on the side of the house, gasping for breath. Emily could see the struggling Christmas cactus houseplant. "'through the half-closed curtains of her friend's front hall. "'But no one answered. "'She slid down to a sitting position on the porch, "'resting against the wall, and pulled out her phone. "'Maria's mobile rang, but eventually it went to voicemail. "'With no other options, "'Emily tried an emergency number for an ambulance. "'It was probably overkill, but she felt horrible, "'and everything still seemed mushy and, and slightly out of focus.' "'even with her glasses on. "'Come on!' "'She began tapping her finger in an irritated fashion. "'But that number kept ringing as well. "'This is not my day,' she groaned. "'Knowing where Maria kept her spare key, "'Emily walked round to the back of the house, "'dodged the bees, and lifted the wisteria "'to find an old broken pot. "'Key in hand, she walked round again and inside.' Sure enough, there sat a heavy phone book near the landline, as she summed through for her doctor. Still no one answered. She began calling every medical facility listed, but it appeared everyone had left the office at the same time. She checked a New England calendar which hung nearby. There was a shopping list sticky, an appointment for tennis, and a scrawled, "'Call Linda!' but no mention of any sort of holiday. Knowing her friend wouldn't mind, she raided the fridge for some water and ice, then collapsed on a large leather couch. Her head continued to throb, even with the ice pack on it, and she began wondering if she should try a a heat pack instead. For lack of anything better to do, she began phoning everyone in her address book. All she heard were variations of a cheery Leave a message! Robotic... You have reached the number. And Tim's newest attempt at humor ending with an evil laugh and Beep! Emily woke with a start to find the room was distinctly darker than when she had arrived. The clock indicated that several hours had gone by. And she mel- A little better, after some rest. Her head still complained, but she could see clearly. With her glasses on, of course. Maybe it was a good thing she hadn't contacted a doctor, and she decided not to try again until she felt much worse. Medical bells were Emily's nemesis. At least as long as her bank account was low. She switched on the television, but it didn't seem to be working. Channel after channel showed only a blank screen until finally she stumbled across one showing 24-hour-old westerns. She was fond of them and watched the black-and-white cowboys ride about shooting up towns for no apparent reason for a few more hours, but then she began to seriously worry about Maria. Of all her friends, Maria was the most dependable of them all. She was always on time, completely trustworthy, and obsessively organized. Even in the living room, Emily could see... Neat little stacks of to-do lists. It was extremely odd of Maria to disappear without a note. Since apparently everyone had decided not to answer their phone, Emily gave up on trying for takeout dinner. She attempted the local Chinese restaurant and pizza place, but it just went to voicemail. So she went back to raiding her friend's cupboards. She dumped some rice into a pot and turned the stove on. "'began feeling nervous all alone in the big house. "'There was no sound, "'not even a neighbor with their stereo too high "'or arguing teenagers. "'She looked up at the dark staircase, "'and something propelled her forward. "'She felt the strange, itching sensation begin again, "'and the thought entered her head that "'it would go away if she went upstairs.' At the same time, she knew somehow that whatever happened, she should not go into the darkness above. Emily angrily shoved that thought aside. She was twenty five, not two. Firmly clicking on the hall light, she stomped her way loudly up the stairs, as if defying whatever was frightening her. The linen closet door was open, and she peered inside. "'nothing but neat stacks of towels and sheets. "'Moving along to the next room, "'she opened the door to find Maria's home office, "'with the computer on set to a screensaver of Star Trek stills. "'A newly printed document still sat in the tray, "'waiting to be taken out. "'That was very odd for Maria. "'Emily had seen her printing something before. "'Her friend hovered by the machine, "'hand open to catch each page,' before it even had a chance to fall into the tray. It was as though Maria had suddenly rushed out for some reason. The bathroom was next, and its door was slightly ajar. Emily pushed it open the rest of the way, and her throat contracted and against itself. Her knuckles went white on the handle, and she began choking for air. Maria had never left the house she lay propped up against the tiles by the sink staring up unseen at the cheerful framed photo of a cottage garden which hung by the mirror and she was quite dead Emily pulled out her mobile her hands violently shaking and tried the emergency 911 number again and again still with no result. Unable to look any longer, she backed her way out and went to shut the door. A husky voice spoke. It was slow and unnatural, like a computer was saying the name and not a person. The short blonde froze again, holding onto the door as if for dear life and starting to shake all over it was no good, saying that voice had been imagined. It was real. She dared not look over at the body. She shut her eyes tightly. Emily. It began again, louder this time. sounded like a scratched CD, repeating over and over. What? The girl finally shouted, gathering the courage to stay down at the body of her friend. It was no longer draped across the floor. Maria stood with her head cocked to one side and deep black eyes boring into Emily's. It was a hungry sort of look. And the corpse reached hesitantly. "'toward the other's face. "'Stop it!' Emily screamed, "'batting the arm away as if it were an angry fly. "'With a snarl of rage like a wounded animal, "'Maria pounced, clawing at Emily's face. "'They rolled out into the corridor "'as the cold fingers of the corpse racked their way across Emily's warm skin, "'always aiming for her face. "'They slammed into the banister, "'and Emily's dizziness returned.' With one final effort of will and adrenaline, she kicked Maria hard, and the corpse cracked against the wood, which finally gave way, sending the body hurtling through the air. It landed with a sickening sound in the hallway far below. Emily grabbed a towel out of the closet and raced for the fire escape. The house had been built back when there were actually metal ladders in the back, and she ran as fast as possible, holding the towel to the scratch marks where blood was already pouring out. She didn't stop running until her legs began giving way, and she collapsed at the edge of Stern Grove under some bushes. Her head fell onto her knees, and tears mingled with the blood in the thick towel. Night set in. Only the street lamps cast a glow in the small spotlit areas of pavement. Most of the houses were dark, and there were no cars on the road. That in itself was strange for San Francisco. Emily crept her way toward one of the pools of light and brought out her small hand mirror from a pocket of her jeans. It had been cracked, but still showed how the red streaks on her face, neck, and arms had stopped bleeding. They were shallow, but stung like anything. Fog was drifting in, and She had left her jacket at Maria's. She opened up the large towel and wrapped herself in the clean side to keep out the cold. It was very clear in the current state of things that public transit was no longer running. She had watched the street carefully and seen no sign of anything. Her house was all the way out by Fort Mason, and that was too far to walk on foot, particularly in the middle of the night through dodgy neighborhoods. Crawling deeper into the underbrush, she found a pile of soft leaves. After stiffing out the small, nobbled eucalyptus pods, she lay down under the towel, her head on a bit of fern, hoping that in the morning, everything would be back to normal. It wasn't. When she walked out into the damp, misty morning, the road was still empty. She decided to start her walk back home if for no other reason than to keep warm. Up and down the hills she trudged, still seeing only blank, empty buildings. At the bottom of the first hill she saw a pile up of cars, each eth- with its engine out of gas. It was as if the people driving had suddenly lost consciousness, and the car kept drifting with its engine running. Every hill was the same, heaps of cars at the bottom, but empty all about. She had reached Van Avenue when she had her first real fright of the day. In unison, every single door opened on the right side of the street. People stood there. Shopkeepers in uniform, families, homeless, businessmen, artists. Hungry look in their eyes, as Maria had. And their skin was that of a corpse dead for several days. As one, their heads swiveled and locked onto Emily. She sprinted her way down the street, running in the middle as far away from the creatures as possible. They each moved slowly. One hand lifted out as if in greeting, but she knew better now. She dodged her way through some stalled cars at the bottom of a grade and up toward her apartment. The sidewalks were filling with the corpses, and she saw her own neighbors filing out toward her way was blocked. Emily managed to keep her head, and ran back the way she had come, leaping over a low stone wall and down toward the water. There were no houses or shops in Aquatic Park, and the area was clear of corpses, save for one or two people standing on the beach. As soon as she approached, their eyes snapped toward her, and they began smiling and ambling toward her. She ignored them and rushed on to the first pier. One or two rangers, still in their khaki uniforms and hats, scrambled about, but she eluded their gaze by going round the back of the office and leapt up the gangway to the largest of the old historic ships. Grabbing some tools from the hold, she bashed the gangway back down into the ocean. The ship itself was huge, with multiple cabins and masts going up into the sky. She smashed her way past the display bars in the captain's cabin and collapsed onto one of the maroon antique sofas. Her shirt was still damp, ripped and covered in blood, so she pulled it off and put on one of the display shirts and vests. It was fortunate the men back then had been small, because they fit her almost perfectly. Still shivering, she pulled on her shoes and climbed into the bunk, glad for dry blankets. She lay awake, hearing the comforting creak of the wooden ship, "'and feeling the gentle walking on the water. "'She needed a respite to think about what to do. "'She was safe for now, but had almost no food. "'There were plenty of restaurants nearby, "'but the moment she went near any of them, "'the occupants would see her. "'The upside was that the ship had plenty of available weapons, "'tools, and clothing on board.' She could use a plank to get across. The corpses she had seen did not seem clever enough to do that. Finally, warm and cozy, she forced herself to get out of bed and track down food and weapons. There was an axe in the hold down near one of the bilges, which she knew how to use from summer camp, and a canvas sea bag which she could put food into. After dragging a plank of wood up from the hold, she gingerly made her way across, then pulled it down onto the dock, throwing more canvas over it, just in case. She crept back round the office and sprinted for an old alley. It was filled with garbage and the strong smell of rotten fish, but it was her back way in. She stopped behind the first restaurant and carefully opened the door. Sure enough, it led to a hall lined with massive refrigerators and racks she stuffed as much food as she could into her bag, particularly things like bread, then snuck back onto the ship. Although a few items were useless, like the uncooked fish which she hefted back overboard for the birds, most of her finds were quite edible. Days dragged on with increasing monotony. At day, she found it easy to move about if she kept behind the left hand of the street, and at night, the zombie-like corpses were on the left so she kept to the right at times she braved a look at the moonlit streets a silent row of figures stood staring from the doorways never moving unless they saw her on one such evening Emily braved a specially long walk to find food because most of it was going bad all the restaurants near the wharf had depended on fresh supplies each day and most were rotten after a week without replenishment What she needed were canned goods. The nearest market was up Hyde Street, and she had to dash into the open briefly to get there. Sure enough, the shambling corpses followed, but she kept up her run, despite the steep hill, and eluded them through a series of back alleys, while keeping a death grip on her axe. The market stood on the left side of the street, which meant its occupants would be out front. She unslung her sea bag and began quietly placing baked bean cans inside when she heard a noise. Like a shell falling. And then the most unnatural sound imaginable. A human voice. It was the first time she had heard one in what seemed like ages. Someone, somewhere, had cried out in pain, then <laughs> swore under his breath. She left the bag and grasped her weapon in both hands, inching over to the sound. Shut up, Mike, you'll get us both killed, a male voice harshly whispered. Just grab some soup and let's get out of here. Emily rounded the toiletries aisle. She had been stalking her way down and stepped into a shaft of moonlight, axe raised. Two teenage boys were standing in front of some cans, one holding out a bulging backpack and the other still massaging his toe, where several jars of pickles had fallen. The three looked at each other for several seconds, each hoping the others were alive. When finally Emily broke the silence with a soft whisper. Leave some chili for me. It's the only thing that tastes decent cold. The two boys let out their breath, and Mike stepped forward. You're the first live person I've seen... Are there others? Keep your voice down, his friend hissed. He's right. We should get more food and then get out of here, Emily whispered quietly. She pulled a few chili cans off the rack, then turned to find her bag. As she rounded the aisle instinct to kick over, she threw herself at the figure standing with its soft smile and arms stretched out. After days of cold, hunger, and hopelessness, she snapped. Dropping the cans, Emily lifted the axe and brought it down hard on the arm. It severed, dropping to the floor of the market. Instantly, the formerly slow zombie corpse became like a wild animal. It snarled and came at her with the frenzy of a cornered cat trying to escape a bath. It scratched, bit, and whirled. She smashed into the freezer section, her weapon bouncing harmlessly to the floor and sliding across the smooth tile. Mike jumped the corpse, bringing it down to the ground and began pummeling with his fists. But two more rounded the corner. His friend picked up an advertisement stand and flung it at them. They wheeled toward the back exit, only to see more angered corpses gurgling and screeching. Mike's friend was the first to go down. He was pinned by three. He began scratching at his face as he screamed. The creature's fingernails gouged their way into his head, ripping out his eyes, then began tearing at their newly acquired delicacy, eating it as if it were their first meal in months. Emily and Mike climbed to the top of the high aisle stacks, and the creatures began trying to jump up to reach them, with no effect. Apparently they were still not clever enough to know how to climb. It was their... It was eyes. Emily looked away. Forward. That's why they always go for our face. Mike didn't say a word but leaned away from her, over the stack, and was sick. As if drawn by the calls of the others, more corpses began filing into the market, all gathering down below them. Emily tried to keep her head, but the situation was desperate. All she could hope for was that at dawn, the animating effect would swap sides of the street. That was hours away. Mike was shaking, his hands clenching and unclenching, his face gone pale. But he looked determined to take out as many of them as he could when the time came. The door burst open, and Emily assumed there would be even more corpses pressing their way into the already large mob. But instead she saw a flashing of the metal and two figures walking inside. One was a tall, burly African American wearing a strange talisman that looked like a bird of some sort and brandishing a spear. The other was a woman about Emily's height, with soft brown hair and grasping two short swords. Live ones, she said calmly. In a graceful motion, both of them took some sort of ancient fighting stance and attacked. Though their techniques were very different, the result was spectacular. In less than five minutes, every last one of the corpses was back to being a corpse, this time in several pieces. Emily was the first to clamber back down. Mike was close behind. They want our eyes! He shouted hysterically. I know. The woman nodded, putting a hand on the team. Shoulder. "'You're safe now.' "'Who are you?' "'Robbins.' "'Sophie Rutz, girl detective.' "'She swiped her hand across a weathered fedora "'as if in an old movie from the 1930s. "'She likes saying that,' "'Haru smiled, "'scrubbing the bloody end of his spear off with a piece of fabric. "'Let's move.' "'The four scurried stealthily under the moonlight.' until reaching a deserted biff of wharf. They ducked under the pier and collapsed onto the refreshingly cool wet sand. Sophie got right down to business. "'We've been tracking an Egyptian amulet which has accidentally been drawn into your world. It is somewhere in this city, but I am not familiar with this time and uh, do not exactly know where to begin the hunt.' Mike was still in shock, and her words didn't penetrate. We could try the museums, Emily offered. The D. Young tends to have African-related pieces. It's all the way in Golden Gate Park, though. Then we'd best stop moving. Sophie stood, brushing the sand off her skirt. Mike merely sat hunched up. Should we leave him? Emily whispered. It didn't seem right, but they had to cover a lot of mileage. It would be fairly safe there, even during the day, as long as he he didn't call out. Heru pulled some herbs out of a bag slung over one shoulder and began muttering something. Mike stopped shaking and lay down peacefully. A sleeping drop, Heru explained. Only a brief one. It should help. It took the rest of the night and well into the morning before they reached the towering, rusty, rectangular building. Heru stopped to stare. "'They build things like this deliberately?' "'At first glance, the structure was hideous, "'compared to the elegant classical columns "'they had passed on their way to the park. "'Emily shook her head. "'Oh, it's like a site-specific sculpture.' "'The effect certainly was overwhelming. "'The massive walls swept up to the size of Noah's Ark "'and glowered over the green expanse around it. "'She led the way to the restaurant, "'which had huge glass windows.' Heru smashed one of them in with his spear from a safe distance, and they clambered inside. Emily took point. She knew the museum well and confidently led the way up and downstairs, through corridors and even over an indoor water feature. At last they reached a gallery for an ancient Egyptian traveling exhibit. An enabble eye set in the back of the display was pulsating with a strange blue light. Sophie took her hat off and carefully picked it up using the felt of the fedora. It fell into the open hat, and she sighed with relief. "'We'll need to use the creek back there,' she turned to Emily. "'To return it.' As they reached the top of the stairs leading down to the gently trickling water at the stepping stones, it was too late. Rows of guards and former patrons stood at the bottom of the staircase— each with a hand lifted out. In unison, they began to chant. Oh, forget this, Sophie muttered. She dropped the amulet to the stone floor then smashed her heel down hard. The metal snapped and sparks flew out from it. She stamped again and the light sputtered and failed, leaving shards of enamel scattered over the floor. The group of people shuddered as a golden wave of light swept over them, restoring their deathly pallor to healthy living flesh. One of the guards was the first to recover. He glanced up at the trio, gathered at the top of the stairs. Hey, you aren't allowed in without a ticket. Emily choked down a happy shriek of joy. She ran down the stairs and gave the startled man a hug, then several other random bystanders. When she turned to find Sophie and Haru, the pair had vanished. Outside was filled with confusion, but it was of a good sort, at least to Emily. Kinds of arguments that living people get into when they find their car fell down and crashed at the bottom of a hill. She practically skipped her way to Maria's house. The door was still open, and she stepped carefully inside, not quite knowing what to expect. Her friend was sitting on the couch watching television with an ice pack on her head.
3: Night,
2: hey Em, she patted a cushion. You're fresh, way late. Yeah, sorry about that. that. Emily grinned from ear to ear. ear. Say, have you been watching my television? It was set to that dreadful Westerns channel again. Emily really Hatblee cool sat down next to her friend.
3: Good to see you alive, she said quietly. Every is
2: oh, it isn't that bad. I think I fell down the we'll stairs or something.
4: We'll Maria shrugged.
2: What's with your face? Your... Did a cat jump you? Thank you to Kevin McLeod of com for music.
0: So that one wasn't what you were looking for, well. How about we step over here? Don't mind the body on the floor. We had to set him there till we could put him back into cold storage. The owner of his coffin didn't make the last payment, so this beauty is now up for sale. If you would like to give me a hand opening this lid, I can let you hear the special sound quality effects in the form of an audio called Last Call. <laughs>
5: Coming. Coming. Lee?
4: Well, that's a relief. I was afraid you wouldn't remember me. Lee? Worsley? In the flesh. I don't believe it. It's been... 20 years. Seemed like it was a good time to say hello. Lee Worsley? I must be dreaming. <laughs> Pinch yourself, Jason. It's me. Really. Lee Worsley. Are you going to leave me out here in the rain,
5: or are... Excuse me. Yes, yes. Please come in. Uh, come in. I'm just uh, gobsmacked. Uh, don't you use phones? Not tonight.
4: This visit had to be personal.
5: <laughs> uh, sit down, please. Excuse the mess. Can I get you tea, coffee, something stronger? A drink would be nice.
4: It's been that kind of night. Irish? Perfect. Just ice.
5: <laughs> Last time we had a drink together, it was a milkshake. <laughs>
4: At Pepe's. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? The amount of time that's passed, and yet I remember it all.
5: Here you go. Thanks. To us. To us. You haven't changed a bit, Lee. It's like you just stepped out of our high school yearbook. (laughs) The soft light helps. You ever see any of the old gang? Eileen or Moira?
4: Mackie. Last time I was in Miami.
5: I haven't seen Mackie for a while, but we phone a couple times a year. His birthday, my birthday, special occasions, New Year's. Mackie told me you were married. Starter marriage. One year of heaven, one year of hell, nasty divorce, and a rebounder that was worse than the marriage. Fodder for my fiction. Anytime I need to write a she-wolf into a story, I've done the research. You? Once.
4: And? He wasn't you. You were always honest, open, willing to talk, to share. With him, there were all these lairs and veils between us secrets and no-go zones. Any sense of trust evaporates, and without that, there's no marriage.
5: More like a chess game.
4: Uh, Always playing for advantage, leveraging favors, maneuvering, trade-offs. Suddenly it was checkmate, and I didn't even realize we were in a competition. God, I hope I'm not like that. You're not, honey. You couldn't possibly have changed that much.
5: So, what brings you to Boston? You. Oh,
4: I've had this sudden, impulsive burst of nostalgia, an urgent need to relive my highlights.
5: I'm a highlight.
4: You've had 20 years to think about us, Jason. How did we do?
5: I've always thought of you as the one who got away. My true love. My lost love. For a long time, I blamed myself. Felt that I let you down somehow. Didn't measure up. Wasn't smart enough. Experienced enough. Strong enough. There was nothing you could have done. I know that now. We were so young. After you left, I was blown apart. There was a hole in my life. I thought of you every day for months, a year, more. You were always with me, no matter where I was or what I was doing. Then one day, I didn't think of you. One day became two, became three, and gradually took a long time. You know what's weird? I still think of you whenever I smell cedar.
4: <laughs> Skinny dipping in your parents' pool.
5: Behind the cedar hedge. Mm. When I check in for the big sleep and my life story flashes before me, I'll relive that night again.
4: I can see it now, naked, floating on my back, staring at the stars, you pulling me by my
5: ankles. Showing everything you had to the moon, your hair swirling in the turquoise like a lazy black river trailing behind you. And your skin so soft, so pale, so... Oh, I could float away on that memory.
4: Such a night... I can't tell you how glad I am to know my memory is conjured by the smell of cedar and not chlorine.
5: I'd think of you every time I clean the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) And you? Ever wonder about me? Your dad didn't like me very much.
4: Dads get ugly when teenage daughters get pregnant.
5: Ugly like Utah.
4: He wanted to get me as far away from you as possible. I will not let my daughter waste her life on some goddamn punk poet. Mom didn't want to move. Told me she'd rather be with her husband than without him. Even if it means living in Utah. She still. Died. Heart
5: attack. I'm sorry.
4: What about yours? I see their picture on the wall there. They were pretty hip. Not many parents would encourage their child's dream to be a poet. Mine certainly didn't.
5: I lucked out in that department. They're retired and traveling the world. Having a ball. Another? I've got time.
4: Tell me, what's happening in your life?
5: I live alone. I can see that. I finished with journalism. Or journalism finished with me. I'm not sure which. Well, maybe I do. And I started writing. Fiction, short stories, plays, even a few words of poetry, which I promptly burned.
4: I still have the poems you wrote me. Such a romantic.
5: I may even write about us someday, Lee. Love, loss, and reconciliation. People love happy endings.
4: The truth is never that simple.
5: Never let the truth get in the way of a good story.
4: Sweetheart, I guarantee that when you tell people this story, no one will believe it. I'm
5: I'm I'm going 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 yet. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Jay? Mackie. Bad news, buddy. Mackie? <gasps> what time is it? Uh, it 4 a.m. Sorry about that, but uh, uh, I thought you'd want to know. Lee Worsley died tonight. What? Lee Worsley. Heart attack. Moira just called. Lee? Can't be. It's been
4: that kind of night. of night.
5: No, 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 no. It, it can't. I just... She was just... We just... I've got time. uh, Tonight? Yeah, tonight. Sorry to be so blunt, but... How else do you break news like this?
4: Lee Worsley? No! No woman ever forgets her first love, sweetheart.
3: She's gone, Jay. Jay?
0: You there?
5: Thanks, Mackie. Call you later.
0: Later. Later.
5: back to sleep was out of the question. After that dream and Mackie's phone call, what are the odds of such a coincidence? It's beyond calculation. I splashed water on my face, went downstairs, flipped on the light, and collapsed. Fell to my knees, slack-jawed and wide-eyed, staring at two crystal glasses on the living room table. Ice cubes still floating in the whiskey.
1: If I told you this was based on a true story, would you believe me?
0: Here's a story sure to give you a splitting headache. Oh, quite literally. They say a wise man knows his enemies, but such intimate knowledge contains the seeds of destruction. By the year 2014, world peace was assured by strong international treaties... ...and the world economy adjusted to a period of almost inconceivable prosperity. But it is a prosperity dangerously threatened by the economic war... ...between Byron Bryan and Lewis Carey... ...leaders of two mammoth world-spanning cartels... ...whose battles, while bloodless are possessed of their own
6: peculiar viciousness. Oh, you think you're the only one who would come up with that idea?
3: I found your agent inside my headquarters. How do you explain that?
6: How do you explain how anything gets done in business?
0: Until one day...
2: Mr. Bryan, a Dr. Rico Stefano is in the outer office. He sent this in.
6: Let me see it
3: you want what i want you have the money i have the means well hmm
6: send him in
5: yes mr brian
6: what can i do for you you can
3: help me destroy lewis carey i'm a neurophysiologist and surgeon When Continental took over Brockton Medical Research, my entire project was scrapped as being impractical. A Life's work totally destroyed. I hate him.
6: Very interesting,
3: but why come to me? Because my project involved an entirely new operational technique that makes possible brain transplants. I know how much you hate him as well. I could put your brain... In Carrie's body, and together we can control things in such a way as to leave Carrie penniless, to crush him as he crushed me, to destroy him, to.
6: Doctor.
2: Doctor, what's
3: wrong? Heart attack! Heart attack! Doctor. P- pacemaker. C- coat. Coat pocket. Hurry. <sighs> Much, much better. I need to buy a new heart. That's another reason I need money desperately.
6: Your idea intrigues me, Doc, and I own nationwide organ banks. I'll get you half a dozen new hearts. Let's get to work. The next weeks are
0: filled with furious plotting by the two men. An ultra-modern lab and operating room is prepared and stocked while Phase 2 begins. Now that that's done,
3: it's time for you to die, Brian. What? Relax, it's only a trick to fool Carrie. But we need time. Time to perform plastic surgery on you so that when Carrie awakens in your body, he'll have no identity. It's time for you to prepare for your new life as your
0: hated enemy. And so, several days later, part one of their fiendish plan is implemented... Brian's plane, under remote control, takes off from the airport with an unclaimed corpse as a passenger, only to crash hours later, obliterating everything within. Meanwhile, the still-living Brian and Dr. Stefano meticulously plan to the smallest detail every facet of their strange operation.
3: Study this dossier of Carrie. I've compiled carefully. It contains business dealings, industrial codes, associates, mannerisms, and notes about his voice and walk.
6: Why study his voice? I'll have his vocal cords.
3: Simply because you look like Carrie isn't enough. You have to be ready to act and react like Carrie. You'll wear weights to adjust to Carrie's bigger size, special shoes to adjust to Carrie's height, glasses to see everything through his eyes... You must study everything closely.
0: The two prepare every waking second. Days later...
6: Stefano, how much longer?
3: A matter of hours. Have you arranged for Carrie to be kidnapped and brought here?
6: Yes. Hey, I'll probably wake up with a headache that's rightfully his. (laughs) Ha. But he will be much worse off.
3: The final preparations begin. First, I'll remove the hair from the top of your skull and inject chemicals to keep it from growing back. Then we'll dye the rest of it gray and stabilize it to keep it that way. And this... This is a special formula of mine which dissolves the mineral content in bone and leaves it only very soft and pliable cartilage for a time. When I inject it, your skull will soften like clay. First, I widen your jawbone. Now, to give your chin a point. Then rearrange your teeth so you can be traced through dental records. A gentle upward push gives you an Indian heritage. And pushing in gives you deep temples. Gentle pinch gives you a protruding brow and... There. Incredible! Is that all? "'Well, we've already burned off your finger and footprints, "'and since you haven't been to an oculist, "'we needn't worry about
0: retinal patterns.' "'A heavily drugged and helpless Lewis Carey was brought in "'and now lies unconscious on the next table, "'unaware of his own impending doom.'
3: So then, let's begin. Lie down on the table.
6: Wait a minute. Remind me. Just how is this going to be done?
3: I've programmed this computer connected to this robotic operating mechanism which has the speed and accuracy of a hundred surgeons to do the actual job. I'm too old and shaky. First, it removes the top of each skull and delicately severs the spinal cord and optic and ear nerves. Then it swaps the brains and reconnects them using special Nero bridges of my own
0: design. The operation begins. Several hours later, in. Wake up. Wake up.
6: Wake up, Lewis. What? Is it over? Let me see. Let me see. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect, Doc. I'm him. Doc, you'll have a new heart by tomorrow. In the meantime, I'd better get over to my offices.
0: The operating theater is suddenly quiet, broken only by the sounds of Stefano cleaning up. And then, the gradual awakening of a metamorphosed Lewis Carey. Williams. What? Who? Carey! You! You're the quack I fired from Brockton Medical! I don't know why you had me kidnapped, but when I get through with you, wait, wait, that's not my face, but, but it is, I can feel it, I'm different, those aren't my features, it's not my face,
3: what have you done to me, <laughs> Wait. I'll kill wait, you, wait.
0: I'll make a deal, I, I have a deal, Terrified and fearful of overtaxing his heart, the mind of Dr. Stefano hatches an incredible idea. I'll kill you! You don't want me. You want Brian. Later in his office, the new Carrie makes the final phone call of the bizarre
6: switch. That's right, $50,000. As soon as the job gets done, so get going.
4: Mr. Carey, there's a Dr. Rico Stefano outside. What? He'd like to see you.
6: Send him in immediately.
3: Well, good afternoon, Mr. Carey. (laughs) Now, how does it feel being the greatest thief in history?
6: Just grace. I'm really getting into it. All of Carey's holdings are mine. All of Byron Bryan's holdings are mine as well. But don't mention our past business again, all right?
3: Of course, of course. By the way, John Doe awoke shortly after you left. He was, shall I say, rather perturbed by his predicament. But I got him calmed down fairly quickly. When he left, he seemed almost...
6: resigned. he will be taken care of shortly. Why are you here? Hey, what's that syringe for? Oh, just a precaution against
3: infection and possible rejection of your brain by the new body. Just a quick prick at the base of the neck. There. All right, Mr. Carey. See you later. Mr. Carey asked me to tell you that he does not wish to be disturbed for the next 15 minutes.
4: Of course. Thank you, Doctor.
3: I gotta get out of here before... before Carey is discovered... Elevators would be too crowded. Ah,
0: the fire stairs. The white-coated figure begins hurrying, running down the stairs. <laughs>
3: Done. Now, Mister Carey, <laughs> we're even. Turn about is fair play. <laughs> you stole my body. I stole Stefanos, and now we're ah.
0: unaware of the ironic implications of his own double cross, Stefano, in Brian's resculpted body, smugly walks the crowded streets until suddenly a silenced rifle spits death. Turn him over, Joe.
3: That was the guy, alright. Good shooting. Let's go get that 50
1: grand.
0: But back at Carey's office, the dreams of power are slowly dying for Byron Bryan, as is his newly acquired body. It seems that the good doctor's injection was a bit more potent than he let on. By the way, this audio script is based on a comic in Creepy Magazine, January 1972. Sometimes you just have to return to the classics. (laughs) Oh, I see you weren't ready for that soft and comfy one. How about we step over here? Can I show you a real gem of a coffin? Good. See, this comes equipped with its own combination lock. You never know who might want to dig you up. If you step closer, you can hear one of my favorites, the raven. I do love the color black. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping. Suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. 'Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember. It was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow— Sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here for evermore. And the silken sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain, thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before— so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating to some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber-door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber-door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer, sir, said I or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that scarce I was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this and nothing more Then with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering in from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is out on the night's plutodium shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being Ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, Bird or beast above the sculptured bust, Above his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, Spoke only that one word, As if its soul in that one word did he outpour. Nothing further than he uttered, Not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, "'Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before.' Then the bird said, "'Nevermore.' Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, "'Doubtless,' said I, "'What it utters is its only stock and store.' "'caught from some unhappy master "'whom unmerciful disaster "'followed fast and followed faster "'till his songs one burden bore, "'till the dirges of his hope "'that melancholy burden bore "'of never, never more. "'But the raven still beguiling, "'all my sad soul into smiling. "'Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat "'in front of bird and bust and door.' And upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking Fancy unto fancy, Thinking what this ominous bird of yore, What this grim, ungainly, ghastly, Gaunt and ominous bird of yore Meant in croaking, never more. This I sat engaged in guessing, But no syllable expressing To the fowl whose fiery eyes Now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining, with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press. Ah, <sighs> nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfume from an unseen censer swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor— Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels he has sent thee. Respite, respite, and a thee from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind a of and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, Prophet still if bird or devil, Whether tempest sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, "'Desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, "'on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. "'Is there, is there balm in Gilead? "'Tell me, tell me, I implore,' quoth the raven, nevermore. "'Prophet,' said I, thing of evil, "'prophet still, if bird or devil,' by that heaven that bins above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked up starting. Get thee back into the tempest of the night's plutonium shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, Still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas Just above my chamber door, And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's That is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him Streaming throws his shadow on the floor, And my soul, from out that shadow That lies floating on the floor, "...shall be lifted... ...nevermore." By the way, I forgot to ask... ...is this for you or a loved one? I couldn't help but notice you have a ring on. Oh, I see. Well, I can see where it can be a very hard decision. In fact, it can be a very big decision... ...and with a lot of financial obligations that should be shared... Unlike our unlucky friend back there, I heard his beloved found a new one already. But enough of that. Let me show you to the front door. I would be delighted to show you more of our models now. However, if you want, you can always check out misfitsaudio.com to see what we have in our category section on the right-hand side. We're always open. Except around midnight, when I like to take a drink break. <laughs> Remember, at Misfits Audio, we like to make your stay not just permanently comfortable, but entertaining. <laughs> Have a nice night. <laughs> <laughs> Misfits Audio's Halloween special, Coffin Exchange, was conceived and written by Captain Long John Tatterback. Our webmistress is April Medkowski. We would like to thank the following bodies for the use of their stories... The Enchanted House of Doors, written by Anna eastep Tadrazak, narrated by Captain John, Big Mac Attack. Last Call, written by Colin Thornton, script editing by Mike Murphy, featuring the vocalizations of John Specht as the narrator, Karen Collar as Lee, Scott Fortney as Jason, and Doug Barron as Mackie, produced by Colin Thornton, music and mixing by Kurt Von Horn, Amarna, The Adventures of Sophie Roberts, Eye of Raw. Written, read, and post-produced by Alexa Chipman. Sound effects thanks to Stevie K. Farnaby and Bill Holweg. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. The Raven, written by Edgar Allan Poe. Read by John Bell. Three-Way Split, written by Dennis P. Junot. Adapted for radio by Jim Smogotta Get Outta Here, featuring the voice renderings or retchings of Evan Williams as Lewis Carey, Mark Snetzko as Brian, Mary Retred as Dr. Stefano, William Smogata as Thug Number One, Eliza Martin and Alex Seropoulos as the secretaries. Narrated by John C. U in Hell Bell. Postmortem production by Jim Smogotta Get a re- job. I am your servant, the coffin keeper for Misfits Audio Productions Copyright 2011.